Hey guys, do you love candles as much as I love candles? If you do, you gotta check out Circle E Candles. I'm telling you, their candles are absolutely my favorites. I have been buying candles from Circle E Candles for over 10 years, and my house always smells amazing. They're triple scented. They're also always running specials, so there's always a good discount on something, or if you buy a certain amount, you can get free shipping. I'm gonna add their link in my show notes so you can go check them out yourself. And guys, seriously, this place is legit. They ship all over the United States. So check them out. They're fantastic. And I wouldn't steer you wrong. You know that. So hey, if I love them, I know you're going to love them. Circle E Candles. You really have to get yourself some. And also let them know you heard about them from me. Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with Nash with You Totally Made That Up podcast. Guys, she is hilarious. I contacted her because, first of all, when she starts talking, I just, it makes me smile. She's so funny and she's from Nashville and just got the best personality. And her podcast has some of the craziest stories I've ever heard, hence the name. You totally made that up. Uh, Nash, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Well, you are so welcome. It took a while for us to do this (laughs) and get our things together. But my thing is with you, I'm telling you guys, you will not believe the stories that they dig up and you'll never hear anything like this. And, and that's why her podcast is getting so popular. One of them is called Lay Off the Beans. I don't even know what that means. One of them's called Buckets in the Attic. One of them's called But Is the Chicken Okay? And another one was called Zuzu's Moon Party. I mean, what the heck, girl? What kind of stuff are you getting into? <laughs> we try so, yeah, the weird stuff. We And sometimes it's history, like history, history. Sometimes it's more recent things that we think, oh, this is going to go down in the books for sure. But no, the titles come from things that we've said in the episodes. <laughs> and that, look, I, that may be a mistake. That may not be. It may intrigue people. It may make people go, I have no idea what this is about. And I'm steering clear. But we have fun. We have fun, definitely. Well, no, I know that you guys talk about the paranormal. You talk about true crime. Um, there might be even a cryptid in there somewhere. So and a lot of it's just so much fun. And to me, what you guys say and then you make that like your title, that just that just tells me how much fun you had with it. So I'm all about that. But today, you came on and you said, Hey, Leslie, we were talking a couple weeks ago, and you were like, I have a really good story for you. And I was like, What? What kind of story do you have? <laughs> and you're like, you're not gonna believe it. And I was like, Yeah, you probably totally made that up. And you're like, No, no, it's a real story. So tell me what you're about to tell us. Well, because I'm a clinician, you know, I have my secret identity, like Batman. And of course, that brilliant nickname, Nash, because I'm from Nashville. That was totally original. Okay, but <laughs> I will tell you, I'm a clinician. And so weird medical things fascinate me. I personally got some doozies from over the years, especially from the emergency department, which I'll never tell for public consumption. I save those for grossing people out at parties. <laughs> you know, it makes, it makes me very popular. But on that note, a tiny warning If anybody listening is easily grossed out, this does get icky. I'm not getting graphic or anything, 
the word gross nicely sums it up. Okay, well, you know, that's okay. We're all about a little bit of weird. My podcast can get kind of weird and the subjects can get a little funky. Most of it's just paranormal, but this one just sounds really strange. So I'm all about it. I'm okay. Yeah, and you're going to feel like it's trying to dip into the paranormal. So that's, again, yeah, I'm like you. That's why I like it. I can't wait. (laughs) And the story I'm about to tell you is, like the stories I peddle over in my place, it's borderline unbelievable. So I thought, because we're approaching Easter time, depending on when this is published, might Easter might have passed, don't know. But (laughs) I thought I'd tell you all a story about a woman who gave birth to rabbits. Oh, oh, okay. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. I take you to 1726. Oh. We're in England, specifically Surrey, more specifically Godalming, which is about 40 miles out from London. I'm probably going to mispronounce every location in this. Bear with me. <laughs> and there's a flurry of activity at the home of one Mary Denyer Toft because she is having an unusual birth experience, as I guess y'all can tell by how I kicked this off. Let me tell you a little bit about Mary. She was born, I'm already getting you. I love it. She was born around 1701. So she's about 25 at the time of our story. We know that she was poor and illiterate and that at 17, she got married to Joshua Toff, who worked in wool textiles and they lived with his family. By this point, they had two children, but she wasn't a stay-at-home mom. She had to work to help make ends meet because at the time, Yadalming was quite the impoverished area. So each morning, Mary would walk several miles out to work in the fields. And I can't tell if this was a communal thing or if these were fields belonging to wealthier people. Right. Regardless, this was very hard work. Okay. And on top of that, over the course of this particular summer of 1726, she's pregnant and far along in the pregnancy by the time fall starts to roll around. And wouldn't you know it, sadly, in August, Mary has a miscarriage. Mm. However, by the end of September, quote, Mary had still appeared to be pregnant. Now, my take on this, on its face, I don't consider this unusual. And if you're a clinician or a woman who has recently given birth, you've been around someone who's recently given birth, if you've ever given birth, you know what I mean. It's not as if after the baby's out, your belly just suddenly shrinks. Oh, yeah, right, right. You know what I mean? You've got like a good six weeks ahead of you, at minimum, where your belly looks really bloated to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. So I can't venture a guess as to why they found this particularly strange. But in any event... Mary claims that she is still pregnant, so I suspect, and I think you'll all agree with me by the end of the story, part of the debacle that follows has to do with her continued mourning about losing the baby, at least initially. Mm, so, right, okay. On September 27th, Mary says she's going into labor for a second time. We know that first they called on a neighbor to come help. Then later, when her mother-in-law, Ann Toft, gets home, she's helping as well. And at some point that night, Mary, quote, gave birth to something resembling a liverless cat. Now, <laughs> how did they know that this cat was without liver, I asked. I did try to find the etymology of it, why that phrasing was used. The closest I could get was that maybe this thing was just really pale and lifeless. But bottom line, yikes. Yeah, yeah, that's what in the, okay, wow. Anyway, there happened to be a doctor nearby in a town called Guilford named John Howard. He is sent for and arrives the next day. Mother-in-law Anne greets him, brings him into the house, and shows him various animal parts that she says Mary has passed throughout the night following the cat. I mean, this was in addition to that. Apparently, he was like, cool. Because it jumps to him coming back the next day. And look, look, if it's me, I never would have left. You could not have pried me away from this house. I'd have told him to make a sofa, have an extra plate set at the table. I'm not going anywhere. But whatever. 
God. Okay, sorry. Keep going. I'm just cracking up. Go no, ahead. No, no. You interrupt me at any time, at any time. <laughs> okay. All right. Dr. Howard's back, and he personally delivers even more pieces of animal, specifically a rabbit leg and, quote, three legs of a cat of a tabby color. The guts were at the cat, and in them were three pieces of the backbone of an eel. Okay, now let's. Wait, 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 wait. What? What? An eel. Now, I don't want to cast aspersions on this little town doctor's ability (laughs) of identifying aquatic creature parts. I just don't know. That one got me. Why the jump to eel? Why not snake? Why not bird? Why not anything? Why eels? Are there rivers in Guildford that are just lousy with eels? (laughs) Do cats have a particular affinity for eels? Are cats adept at fighting river currents? Didn't look any of this up. Y'all write into Leslie if you know. Don't write me. Write Leslie. Okay. But I'm not alone in wondering about the cat thing. Howard has an idea saying the cat's feet, I suppose, were formed in her imagination from a cat she was fond of that slept on the bed at night. And this comes up again later, this connecting of her thoughts to what's coming out of her. So hang tight. We're going to get there. Okay. There's the paranormal part. Yep. There's your little paranormal trying to sneak in. You know, it's a birth and bunnies. Okay. So further, quote, over the next month, Howard recorded that she began producing a rabbit's head, the legs of a cat, again, and in a single day, nine dead baby rabbits. Nine, everybody. What? This is legit. This really, he really witnessed this. I mean, seriously. This part of the story, I'll tell you, is legit. There are dead bunnies coming out of her. And ladies, if y'all aren't already cramping up and squeezing your legs together, (laughs) I don't know what. I mean, you would think back then everything was so superstitious and everybody was just so afraid of every little thing. I'm surprised they didn't deem her a witch. I'm surprised they didn't think that, you know, she conjured this up. Absolutely. I I don't, I think maybe because doctors were the first on the scene, perhaps, but I'm with you. I can't believe that they just didn't immediately go, yeah, go the witch route or demon possessed or whatever. Yeah. If there's an eel coming out of you, I think I'd take her down to the river and try to drown her because I wouldn't know any better back then, you know? So (laughs) see if she floats, put her, put her in with the eels and see what happens. Yeah. Okay. What to do? Howard is stumped. I suspect none of us are, but he is. So he naturally writes to other physicians and scientists who say so. And he also shot a letter to the secretary of the ruler at the time, who was King George I. I saw in other places that, no, he wrote so-and-so, and then one of the king's physicians got wind of it. Doesn't matter. Point is, word has reached the royalty. The king is like, ah. Oh. He doesn't quite know what to do with this information. So he dispatches Samuel Molino, who was secretary to the Prince of Wales, and also one of his personal physicians, Nathaniel St. Andre, who was from Switzerland and was a skilled anatomist and surgeon. In the meantime, because, you know, letters take forever, and especially so back in the day, Mary had been moved to Guildford to be closer to Howard, and quote, whenever Toft delivered a rabbit, Howard promptly pickled it and placed it in a jar on a shelf in his study. You know, like you do. What in the world? Now, they're not alive, right? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's why they're in jars, I guess. Okay. Yeah. What? I know. The dudes from London, they make good time. And on November 15th, they've arrived to see Mary. And what do you know? She's just gone into labor and delivers rabbit number 15. 15 (laughs) on the 15th. How's about that? (laughs) Oh, my God. And St. Andre and Molyneux get to see the whole thing, plus a few more. But, big but... When the guys examine the rabbits and then dissect them, surprise, no way could they have developed in Mary's body. 
because for one thing, some of the rabbits appeared like two and three months old, not fetuses, and oh, whoopsies, their stomachs had hay and grass in them. So unless she's got a garden in her uterus, a rut row, <laughs> and of course, a river with eels, let's never forget that. She must have got a river flowing through it. So the jig is up, one might think. Okay, I that's mean, just disgusting. Spoiler. Yeah, now I'm starting to get the picture and going, okay, what in the world? What is she doing to herself? Because spoiler, y'all, she's not actually just stating bunnies. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> so they bust her, right? Uh, but what if? What if this is legit? What can St. Andre do to rule out other explanations? Just in case Mary's not doing what common sense would seem to dictate she's doing, which is shoving dead animals inside of herself. So St. Andre decided the right course of action was to investigate more, really get the science thing. No, no, he didn't. No, no, no. St. Andre immediately packs up some of the jars of pickled rabbit to take and show the king. It's exactly the kind of thing I'd strut in a court with. I don't know about you. Oh, it's God. such a pickled rabbit. <laughs> Can't wait to see that. Can you imagine the look on everybody's faces just slowly turning and going, what? Now, royal emissaries showing up in town was a big deal. It did not go unnoticed, and the story has spread like wildfire. Mary has become a celebrity both back home in Godalming and there in Guildford. Then this time passes even further to London. And I personally like to imagine St. Andre, like when they stopped along the way back for a break, just plopping the rabbit jar up onto the pub counter when he's asking for a pint. Just casually being like, oh, this from the bartender. <laughs> and, and then that's how the story spread. That, that's my headcanon. Now, King George, in a smart move, is like, yeah, so St. Andre, this is cool and all, but you shown up with not a lot of insight. And you're a little too excited about these pickled rabbits. So I'm going to send some more peeps to check this out. No offense. And so he sends another one of his personal physicians, a German surgeon named Seratius Ehlers. And Ehlers was skeptical with a capital S. For one thing, he notes that frequently Mary was holding her legs together and it appeared she was trying to, quote, prevent something from dropping down. Also suspicious was that Howard didn't allow Ehlers to assist in delivering some of the bunnies, though Howard does give some to Ehlers for examination. He does not pickle them, nor does he dissect them there. He takes the extra step of bringing them back to London so he can evaluate them in what I assume must have been a really tricked out lab, being at the palace and all. Yeah. <laughs> right? It must, yeah. And why, I mean, St. Andre had to have had access to the same facility, so I, I don't get St. Andre. What kind of do? You'll see as we go. I kind of get his thought process. But Ehlers finds pellets in one of the bunny's boom booms. He busts out the microscope, and sure enough, more digested hay and grass. On November 21st, Ehlers goes to King George and is all, Ain't no way this is legit, and here's what I found. I think this is some elaborate hoax on Mary's part. I think Dr. Howard's in on it. And P.S., we need to put St. Andre on some sort of medication because WTF. <laughs> I mean, what is he? He didn't say that last part, but you know everybody's thinking it. Right, right. And speaking of, while this is going on, St. Andre called on his own second opinion, a Sir Richard Manningham, who is a well-respected physician who specialized in obstetrics and was a top choice for upper-class people in London to deliver their babies. He goes to see Mary, and she delivers what he thought to be a hog's bladder. And look, I appreciate the variety her uterus has chosen to provide us. It keeps things spicy, you know? Where are they getting these ideas of eel and cow bladders? Or what was it, hog bladder? What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The creativity is astounding. <laughs> Manningham 
is unmoved, like Ehlers. His gut is telling him that this is some sort of scam. But St. Andre and Dr. Howard beg him not to broadcast it because, quote, it seems they were trying to save their reputations in the light of what Ehlers had concluded. Yeah, that's smart because y'all are starting to look bananas. (laughs) But seriously. Here's the part where I think y'all are going to kind of see where St. Andre's coming from. And again, we got to put ourselves back in the day. On the other hand, science has advanced quite a decent bit. But still, here's the deal with St. Andre. And it has to do with that thinking about cats stuff I mentioned earlier. So way back when, a thing people believed in was something called maternal impression. The root of this, of course, is blaming the mother for birth defects real or perceived, mild to serious, and not by her actions, but by her emotions and thoughts. An example given in one of my sources being that if a pregnant woman was thinking about and craving peaches a lot, that would explain why her baby had a red birthmark. And another source gave the example of being fixated on pigs. So that's why the baby has an upturned nose. And while that's clearly ridiculous, there's something else that Mary said that likely reinforced St. Andre's theory of that maternal impression stuff. This time about the bunny births, because again, the majority of what she's birthing are rabbits. When asked what she thought about all this, Mary had said that one day out in the fields, shortly before everything had started, she spotted a rabbit and chased it and tried to catch it, but she failed. And it stayed on her mind. It seems like St. Andre is kind of latching onto that, onto that thinking into being reasoning. And like I said, they were so superstitious back then. And I think sometimes even just you know the world can be superstitious about a lot of things even now but and you know you've heard of tulpas you've heard of people talking about tulpas where they can just almost imagine something to being it's kind of like that in this whole process of birthing bunnies but I want to know why she was doing what she was doing because obviously the jig's up and she's actually either holding on to them between her legs or she's actually putting them inside her is that right uh-huh yes the documentation I read It sounds like they, I'm not going to go too far down this road, but they saw emerging of some of this stuff. Some of it, you know, it was like the mother-in-law would walk out of the room holding it or Dr. Howard would walk out holding it. But there were witnesses. There were physician witnesses that saw her birthing these things. So, Oh, wow. Okay. That's just yikes. Okay. We are going to get to the theories. I've stuck one of my own because I know y'all care so much about what I think. But, all right, so we have now arrived on November 29th. So this is two full months that has been going on. Mary's moved to London, specifically into a bathhouse called Lacey's Bagnio, which somebody needs to name a strip club, Lacey's Bagnio. (laughs) Lacey's Bagnio is what I'm fighting hard in my brain. (laughs) I I don't know why a bathhouse versus a hospital, you got me. In any event, St. Andre has gotten completely frazzled by this point. He has now contacted everybody and their mother, one of whom was a Dr. James Douglas, another really respected anatomist in OBGYN. And when Douglas gets to Lacey's boogaloo bungalow, he's kind of taken aback to see this huge crowd of doctors that St. Andre has talked into coming to town. Among them, Dr. Manningham, who remained unconvinced, but damn it, he's going to see this through. (laughs) What does Douglas think upon his examination? It's a bunch of bull. So the problem is, things are starting to get less amusing and more concerning because, quote, between November 30th and December 3rd, Mary was also badly infected and had fits, which made her lose consciousness. Oh, wow. Which I imagine is... 
you know, febrile seizures. She's spiking fever so high it's sending her in seizures is my guess. But then after several days pass, a break in the case. One of the bathhouse porters was caught trying to go into Mary's room with a rabbit. Dun, dun, dun. They were all, hey, what you doing? And the porter <laughs> promptly spills the beans. He says that Margaret talked. Mary's sister-in-law had, quote, asked him to procure the smallest rabbit he could find. Manningham and Douglas have kind of teamed up at this point. And while they do find this incredibly incriminating, they know that nothing's going to beat having a confession from Mary herself. And they're waiting for her to go into quote-unquote labor again, because this time she ain't got no rabbit. She starts <laughs> claiming to have contractions on December 4th, which, again, with all that she's going through just physically, her cramping up, none of that surprises me. So I get maybe people witnessing and her being clearly in distress. That, to me, I think is as real as can be. Absolutely. So she starts claiming to have contractions. Nothing is produced, of course. So they're like, Mary, you want to talk about it? She does not. So they call on the Justice of the Peace, Thomas Clarget, to come down to Lacey's Bath and Body Works. They get that porter. <laughs> porter tells Clarget what he told Manningham and Douglas, and they get a sworn deposition. Clarget immediately orders that Mary be taken into custody to question her, but she's keeping her mouth shut. A few days go by. They aren't letting up on pressuring her, and then Manningham pulls out the proverbial big gun. He goes, if you don't help us solve this little mystery... I'm going to find the answer myself because I will perform surgery to examine your internal organs to figure out once and for all why you are spontaneously birthing small animals. <laughs> and what do you know? That, that'll do it, right? That'll do On it. December 7th, Mary says, yep, you got me. I've been doing exactly what you think I've been doing. And by the way, I had accomplices. As if this whole thing isn't weird enough, she initially says that her accomplice was, I kid you not, quote, the wife of an organ grinder. <laughs> what? Random. And again, I give Mary props for her imagination. But then, as she's rambling, it gets more believable. I mean, after all, they already had the quarter's confession that pointed to the sister-in-law, and Mary ended up saying that it was her mother-in-law, Anne, who was orchestrating the whole thing. This was all particularly crappy for our buddy St. Andre, because who boy, not only did everybody know that he was a believer, he'd gone and put it in writing. On December 3rd, he had published his, quote, True to Life expose, which was a 40-page pamphlet he called a short narrative of an extraordinary delivery of rabbits. I mean, bless his heart. <laughs> and in it, he elaborates on what Mary had told him about that rabbit she tried to catch, saying, quote, that same night she dreamt that she was in a field with two rabbits in her lap and awakened with a sick fit, which lasted till morning. From that time, for above three months, she had a constant and strong desire to eat rabbits, but being very poor and indigent, could not procure any. And y'all hold that thought about her being too poor to go buy a rabbit, because we're going to circle back to it. So on December 9th, Mary is officially charged with being, quote, a notorious and vile cheat. They send her to Bridewell Prison, apparently to await some sort of trial, but for what? We'll talk about that in a second, too. And supposedly, the wardens allowed people to come in and stare at her, I guess. There's no more births to see, so I don't quite get that. Then, it's not documented why, but then, after a few months, she was suddenly released. So historians propose that the likely reason 
was to avoid further humiliation to the physicians who'd fallen for it and, of course, the medical establishment in general. Perhaps even more significant is possibly bringing shame upon the royals since it was, after all, one of their personal physicians who spoke the loudest about it being the real deal. And according to one of my sources regarding King George, quote, it was widely known that he'd had a real interest in the case. So its exposure posed a potential embarrassment for the monarchy. But talking about the doctors in general, it was mentioned that the papers were really just going to town, making fun of them for even being involved in a cursory manner, for even entertaining the prospect and going to check it out in the first place, that they didn't dismiss it right away. And more on the hating on physicians' angles, specifically OBGYNs, in just a moment. Side note, though, in case you're curious, as far as what happened to the physicians I've mentioned, Manningham and Douglas were fine. Their careers didn't suffer. I mean, they basically solved the mystery after all. Right. Howard did have charges brought against him of, quote, being concerned in the cheat and conspiracy of Mary Toft. But ultimately, those charges were dropped, and he kept doing his thing as Guilford's physician. But St. Andre, yowza. How did they put it? He lost favor with the court. I mean, yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) (laughs) Pack up your pickled rabbits and get on out. And then all his patients started going to other doctors, including the royal family, of course. And it seems that he retired, left London, moved to Southampton, and ultimately died while staying in an almshouse. So this completely bankrupted him, and he never recovered. Bottom line, Mary spends a few months in jail. She had that small period of fame, and boom, she's gone. I assume back home to married and mama life and to working in the fields. It's documented that two years later, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. She next pops up in records in April of 1740 when she was charged with, quote, receiving stolen goods, and she's put in the Guildford House of Corrections, but she got acquitted at trial. Then the next time we hear of Mary is when she dies on January 13, 1763, when she was 60 years old. And interestingly, the papers printed a notice of it, unusual for someone of a common class, but I guess people were still aware of the story even all those years later, because in the obituary, she's called Mary Toft, widow the imposterous rabbit wow okay first of all why what was her motive was it to get fame and fortune so she wouldn't wouldn't be poor what was the whole reason for doing this especially if she had accomplices and they thought it was okay well and you you have taken the words out of my mouth because here's the part where we're going to try to ascertain why (laughs) why (laughs) historians have dug into the story And there's a couple of proposed angles to this. First and foremost, being that Mary was taken advantage of by her mother-in-law, Anne, who I never saw was charged with anything, by the way, but that doesn't surprise me. Seems like she was a real slick talker. But, I mean, in her final confession, Mary very pointedly, when asked if anybody put her up to this, she stated it was Anne. As for Dr. Howard, I don't see the motivation for him myself. Unless he thought this would, I don't know, make him famous, but it's so easily debunked. I just can't imagine he thought he'd get away with it for long. But I think the main reason these folks couldn't be charged with anything is because, as one of my sources put it, there's no evidence that any money ever changed hands. So what was the court going to do, charge them for being trolls? There's nothing to do. So looking into what the motivations were, I saw some historians going down a road of, Oh, this was a group of ladies, talking about Mary and the mother-in-law and the sister-in-law, who were starting to get displaced as midwives because more and more male doctors were starting to take on the role of OBGYN. And the delivering of babies, both as a mother and as a midwife, was one of the few areas in life where women had control. 
And so they wanted to humiliate these male doctors with this con. And okay, maybe, but it's never mentioned that any of them were midwives. Doesn't mean they weren't. I just feel like, especially in the case of Anne, the mother-in-law, that would be an important fact to mention. So for me, that seems like a stretch, the whole trying to disenfranchise these doctors that are now dipping their toes into being OBGYNs. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Because that is some complex long-term thinking. I'm not trying to be ugly here. I'm really not. But these were largely illiterate, poor, uneducated country folks. Right. And that just seems implausible. It's just implausible. No offense to historians. I just, I don't, mm. What I think is that, yes, the mother-in-law took advantage of Mary's fragile mental and physical state after a late-term miscarriage and saw an opportunity and that her purpose for doing so involves those damn rabbits. I think there's a specific reason that rabbits were chosen, and it all does tie in. I do think it ties in to financial motivation. Now, at first blush, it may not seem like it, that money's at the core, because as I noted, no evidence of money changing hands. And they easily could have charged a fee for people to come see Mary, because clearly they were confident in the hoax, and rightly so. They succeeded for far longer than they should have. So why not have an admittance fee? for the people who were wanting to see for themselves, but they didn't. Mm. Okay, okay, so, right? So, uh, that's not tracking. But, again, maybe you all agree with my theory. I do think there's money behind this. But, okay, okay, so why the rabbits? Well, there's a historian named Karen Harvey. She talks about how she thinks there may be a political connection. And here's what you need to know about rabbits at this time. They were for rich folks, period. And Harvey says, quote, in medieval Britain, Rabbits lived in warrens built by local lords who sold their meat and fur as elite goods. These rabbits frequently escaped to munch on commoners' grasslands and gardens. Landowners' rabbits were seen as a pest for lower-status people in rural areas. So this is something that represents good money, the meat and the fur. And it's flaunted in your face. They're invading your land. They're snacking on your crops. And oh, by the way, it's illegal to catch them or kill them even though they're on your property. And it's mentioned in one of my sources that there were harsh punishments for it, like along the lines of destruction of property and theft, if commoners killed the rabbits or caught and kept them. And Harvey goes on to talk about how there were actually protests across England around this time regarding the lack of rights for commoners, as it were, specifically in this case regarding agriculture and hunting and such. So this, of course, included rabbits, yeah, but also deer and fishing which is all tied to land ownership, all that feudal stuff, blah, blah, blah. Y'all know that drill. And through her research, Harvey says she found out that Joshua Toft, Mary's husband, had actually participated in such a protest shortly before the hoax started. Then she goes on to talk about how maybe this hoax was Mary's way of protesting because as a woman, she wasn't able to go and protest herself, that perhaps she felt this was the only way she could participate. But y'all, I tell you, got to disagree on this theory as well. First and foremost, because this was incredibly painful for Mary. Infection aside, in fact, just listen to this. The documentation by physicians in it, it talks about how more often than not, the claws were still on these animals. Oh, yeah, the pain alone. And you're right, infection. You And back then, I mean, they didn't know anything about rabies or any kind of animal diseases. So there's a number of things that she could have gotten sick from. So, okay, keep going, because I'm just enthralled as to what you really think the whole motive was. Well, and Mary, like, again, going back, Mary said several times, and in a signed confession, that this was not her idea, that this was her mother-in-law. And again, talking about the mother-in-law, while I think she's a stellar con woman, 
I just don't see the mother-in-law as this great political strategist. So the whole thing about taking down the doctors or taking down the landowners, it's just a little bit of a stretch for me. So while I hear what the historians are saying, I think there's possibly a better theory and a more cut and dry one. And I personally didn't see this anywhere. This is coming from my non-historian brain, so take it or leave it. (laughs) But I think they were going to steal rabbits and breed them and sell them. And the explanation was going to be that Mary was birthing them. Because how could the rich people claim ownership over rabbits that came out of somebody else's body and was witnessed by other people? Okay, there you go. There you go. Yes. But, you know, that's a really weird way (laughs) of trying to... No, no, no. They couldn't buy them. They couldn't capture them. They'd get arrested. They'd get fined. They'd get whatever the punishment was. I think the end game was to say, look... First, they came out in pieces, but now they're fully developed. Mother-in-law comes out of the room with a couple of live rabbits. Wow. Then they set up their own little warren out back, start breeding, and then there's no need for Mary to birth them anymore. Oh, golly gee. She's back to having regular old human babies. Can you believe it? Wow. (laughs) But now we have this thriving rabbit fur and meat business. So Mm. to me, that's not as much of a stretch. No, no. And I I agree with that. But my Lord, you know, the the jokes that could be made from this, well, they're... (laughs) I mean, but you know what? I can't believe they wouldn't be more afraid of being accused of being witches, to be honest with you, because we had just gotten over the whole Salem witch trial not long before then. And they were doing that in England before they were doing it in Massachusetts. So 100%, 100%. I just, it, it's a risk. It's a definite risk. I don't buy that they were strategic enough to be playing 4D chess, but I do think they were savvy enough to play some pretty sneaky checkers. And I think the mother-in-law was a damn good con. I desperately wish we knew more about her and her past. No way this was her first rodeo. There's just no way. Oh, I know. And, you know, back then, you had to mind your elders. And, boy, can you imagine the kind of crap mothers or fathers-in-laws did to their newly in-lawed sons or daughters? Because, man, I tell you what, (laughs) some of the things you hear, I mean, even in the court, even in, like, royalty, the mothers-in-laws or the fathers-in-laws, oh, my gosh. It's, well, you know, it's horrific. So this is one of those horrific things. Claws still attached um, and we're going down a rabbit hole. I had to say it. I, <laughs> I had to say it. <laughs> Y'all see what I'm talking about with Nash? Is she hilarious? And she pops in these little innuendos and she says these little modern things twisted on these old, you know, yeah, on these old things that we're reading about. And she just puts her spin on it. And it's so funny. And that's why I had her on my show. Um, Nash, tell everybody more about your podcast and what you guys kind of cover, because I really didn't say much about it at the beginning. So tell my listeners what they can expect if they go to your podcast. Well, they're usually in our, the goal is an hour. Sometimes it gets like an hour, 15, 20, 30, you know. We like the stuff that's weird, obviously. If it has a paranormal supernatural twist, bonus points. And sometimes we get a little sneaky with that. I'll give you an example. We talked about the sinking of the Essex, and that is the true story behind the book Moby Dick. But there's a sea monster element to it, this, you know, mystical, creepy, what's out there in the deep part. So, you know, we kind of sneak it in sometimes. If there's a story we really want to tell, we'll make a connection. But then other times, okay, well, the first episode, we told the true story behind the movie The Exorcist, and y'all, 
we we laugh a lot, but possibly the hardest we've laughed was that very first episode <laughs> because it's a doozy. What else have we talked about? Oh, we do intersperse little shorty, quickie episodes that can be, you know, about anything. They don't have to have supernatural or whatever connotations. Um, they can be listener stories. They can be a listener saying, hey, this is a weird, funky thing that happened in my hometown. Look into it. And you and your co-host, Tiff, now, does she do her stories or is it mostly you? Because you know what? I think I've only heard uh, stories told by you. So your co-host, Tiff, what does she do for the podcast? She does generally, not lately. It seems like th- lately we've had to split a bunch in the two parts, ma- mainly because I talk too long, as you all <laughs> have seen. Tiff is much more succinct. But yes, she picks one, I pick one. We pick a topic and then... Yeah, we split it. So that's the episode. You get two stories in an episode. Okay, yeah. That's okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And it's brilliantly done. How did you guys meet? What made you want to do this podcast? This is so funny. So we were in kind of a writing, an online writing group, like short stories. We're not doing like novels or something. And, you know, not a book club, like literally short stories. And we also got involved because it's a really, a lot of people laugh at fan fiction it's a really good writing exercise because you have to, well, unless you just go off the rails, take the characters and go nuts with them. If you limit yourself to working within the already established world of something, you know, some fandom. Oh, yeah. So we had a common interest in the show Supernatural, RIP, because it's over now, but great show. <laughs> so that we would practice writing through that. And we would, you know, there was a group of us, you know, you trade stories and whatever and critique them and play editor for each other and stuff like that. So we initially wanted to make the podcast going through the episodes because there's, you got 15 years of material going through the episodes and telling true, if there were any true stories behind what they were doing. Problem was there's like 14 vampire episodes and one of them was the lady in white and that pops up in every culture and there's no, we like to have concrete Stuff, you know, like documentation and all. Right, There's right. nothing there. There's nothing there to pin down. And it got to be that way with a lot of episodes. So we scratched that and we said, let's just do weird stories. And that, you know, that's actually really cool and how organic it was that you guys met up. And one thing that my listeners may not know, I don't know Nash very well. Um, we had talked a couple months ago because I just, I'd heard her for the first time and loved her and she agreed to do my podcast and then things just kind of got in the way. Then we had the holidays and all the things. And then she was like, about a week ago said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to record again. And I was like, yay. So I don't even think she knows I just released my eighth paranormal romance novel and uh, <laughs> I don't think you I don't think you know that it's set in New Orleans and um, through Lady Boss Press is one of Kristen Proby's universe books. But uh, I also do that on the side. And I may take this out because I'm not trying to advertise for my, for my books, but I just didn't know no, you, you knew that. Yeah. Do what you want. No. Well, you know, most of the people that listen to me, they do know. And if they don't, at the end, I kind of talk about it a little bit on, on the backside of the podcast. But but that makes me understand because fanfic, it's a big deal. Like, that's what started the whole fanfic with Edward and Bella. And then E.L. James started her fan work, you know, her fanfic with them. And that's how Fifty Shades of Grey came out. In fact, I was at a book signing with her and was sitting next to her on a panel. So she's, Ooh. yeah, she's amazing. She's fantastic. And she's so nice and so down to earth and nothing like I ever thought. And I, at the time I knew, but I didn't know, and except for maybe a month before I met her, 
that she was even British. Didn't even know. You know did I know that? I'm trying to think if I knew that. Yeah, I think she, again, I'm not there. I've never, but, but you meeting her, that's a one degree away testimony. You know, you kind of hear that, oh, she's real this and that, but she strikes me as just a tough businesswoman and she gets what she's worth. She goes after what she thinks she's worth, what her talent is worth period. And I'm like, you know, I feel like the the vibe I got is that it was a case of, once again, a strong woman, you know, being vilified and Right, and exactly. Starting out as fan fiction. I'm like, get your coin, girl. Well, you know, and the thing is, she's always been, she's been in the television industry for a long time. So she kind of knows how some of that stuff works anyway. And she had a team of people helping her. So, but like I said, you know, it's not like we became besties or anything. It's just, she was so nice to me and people were asking her on the panel they were they were going like you know because they ask all the authors and I just happened to be one of the authors that was featured in the panel and they were asking all of us how we got started and she did her host spiel of you know I I started out doing fan fiction you know and then I got uh I got a little attention and then all of a sudden I was going to premieres and they were you know making books out of things and movies out of things and then she hands me the mic you know she she goes that's pretty much what I did and and I get the mic literally from her and I'm like, I'm supposed to follow that? Seriously? <laughs> what? Well, no. And I'm, I'm not, again, like you say, we don't know each other well, but legit, I'm just so proud of you. I, anybody who publishes their own work, I'm just, I would love to do that one day. That's like a little pocket dream I have because I do love writing so much. So I admire you immensely for doing that. Well, well, thank you. But let me tell you something. You wrote that entire spiel that you just read to my listeners and to me. And it was very well done, very well written, funny as hell. And and I would have interrupted you, but you were on such a good stance. I, I couldn't let it go. I thought, well, we'll talk afterward because this is just too good. You're fantastic. And you are so good on your podcast, too. I can tell the writing's very well done. And I also can tell you do it yourselves. You're not reading from Wikipedia. You're not reading from some document. I mean, yes, you get your information, but your spin on it and your personality added in, it just makes it so much better, Nash. It really does. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's our thing. We don't we don't like the rehashing Wikipedia. That Oh, that works my nerves. Not to talk ill of others, but ooh, that works my nerves. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. Hey, there's nothing wrong with Wikipedia. I use it a lot for little things here and there. But um, I like podcasts that just try a little harder and give you that quality. Because honestly, you guys keep this up. You're, you're going somewhere with this podcast. It's just too fun. Because there's a lot of people that kind of do the same stories. They put their own spin on it. But the fact that I can't find your stories anywhere unless I dig deep. And I'm sure you had to dig deep down a rabbit hole to find yours. So <laughs> there I go again. I love Sorry. the rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah, happy Easter, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nash, tell everybody where they can find you. We are on most all of your typical podcast platforms, and we're on Twitter at YTMTU Podcast, because they wouldn't let us write out. You totally made that up, so YTMTU Podcast. And on Tumblr, you totally made that up. And on Instagram, at you totally made that up. Oh, my God. Are you guys on TikTok yet? Oh, Oh, no, that frightens me to no end. Are well, you I, well, I just got on it, and it's free, so I got on it. And my uh, the publisher for my latest book, they're on it. So, hey, I was like, well, if they're going to do it, I've got to share their promos for me. So why not? And now I do it. And it's so much fun. The videos are great. Instagram is for pictures, and TikTok is for videos. So FYI, it's so fun. 
you'll get lost in it and you will never come up for air. So be careful of that. But no, Nash, you have been, no, seriously, you've been great. Y'all listen, you totally made that up podcast. When do you drop your new episodes every week? Typically on Sundays. And of course, the reason Liz was talking about us getting delayed doing this, I, because um, I'm at that age where, you know, you wake up and something hurts and you didn't do anything. You have no idea why. But apparently I have a bulging lumbar disc, which is, Super fun. And so I'm just now kind of getting to where I can sit up. Bless his heart. She's been so patient with me. So the most recent episode, January at some point, I published it. So we're, we're going to get back on the horse soon. But you've got like, I don't know, like 50 to go through. Oh, yeah. Name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys, you'll have a plethora of... <laughs> great episodes to listen to and they're all equally funny and tiff is she just you know adds to the magic she's fun too um but no seriously y'all check their podcast out uh give them a like on facebook go to their instagram follow them there that way you can see all the new episodes coming up and nash thank you so much for joining me you have been a blast as usual thank you for having me i so appreciate it if you like what you heard please leave me a five-star review it'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.